The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today knowing that you are the one um, amazing Father who has provided everything for us, God. And we just thank you for the word that you have given us, um, even as it can be tough to hear that suffering is going to come. Um, And just the thought of to live as Christ, to die as gain, God. And so we just pray that um, you speak through Randall today and that you just soften our hearts to whatever message it is that you're wanting us to hear today. We love you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Monica. All right, good morning, everyone. Uh, I just want to say welcome first to the newcomers that are here today. Uh, my name is Randall, pastor of Grace City. Uh, it's good to be with you. Um, happy Father's Day to the fathers that are out there. Um, I'm a father of three, and, and it's a joy to be able to, to have that, that responsibility. Um, and so I wanted to start out just with a dad joke this morning. I, I got a joke from uh, my friend A, and so if you know A, he's one of the deacons in our church. And so, A, I said, what's the best dad joke you have? And so this is what he told me. He said, um, what happens when a joke becomes a dad joke? Like, how does it become a dad joke? He said, well, I don't know. He says, well, the, the joke becomes a parent. And so that's how a joke becomes a dad joke, becomes a parent. All right. If you like the joke, you can go encourage him. He's in the kids' area. If you don't, then... Um, <laughs> I don't know what to say. Just ask him if he has another one, you know, that, that can help you out. But, um, you know, one of the, the encouragements about Father's Day is that uh, for me, it's, it's also a call and a, and a responsibility that uh, our, our generation needs. Um, for many of us, if we, we did a, some study and some research on this generation that's coming up, uh, many would say it's a fatherless generation. Uh, some uh, don't have fathers present. 
Um, others have fathers that are present but emotionally absent. And so there's just a lot of fatherlessness within this generation. Um, and my hope is that uh, just for us as a church body, we can be uh, a part of the, the, the kingdom remedy, if you will, uh, when it comes to a fatherless generation. Um, but, but raising up uh, a new generation that knows what it means to have uh, a father that is loving, is caring, is kind, uh, takes the word of God seriously and lives that out. Um, because I, I'm reading this book right now. Uh, it's called The Intentional Father. And one of the things he talks about is there's like on the one end of the spectrum, there's the irresponsible father. And then on the other end, it's like the, the intentional father. Father, What does it look like to be an intentional father? And so I just pray that we have uh, godly uh, men that are raised up in this church and, and that this could be just a, a place of, of hope and healing uh, because of that. Uh, another thing, uh, today is uh, Juneteenth. And so um, as a country, uh, we uh, did not recognize this until uh, just recently as, as something to, to, to reflect on. But I think it's important for us as a church to, uh, to remember that the, uh, the effective end of slavery in America uh, happened on, on uh, June 19th. And, and I think for us as a church family, it's, it's a call to, uh, to remember, a call to grieve, like repent of, of sin, right, as personally, um, and I think even just thinking about how it's affected our nation, uh, but also thank God for, for freedom, but ultimately that the freedom that we're seeking um, isn't going to be found uh, on this side of heaven, but ultimately uh, in eternity with God. And so uh, just remembering that uh, for our church, um, we are a uh, multi-ethnic uh, people. Uh, when you look at heaven, it's going to reflect every people group, every people group, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so uh, that's the joy that we get to celebrate, right? It's that uh, it, it reflects uh, every tribe, tongue, nation of people, and that uh, because of what Christ has done, ultimately, that's where freedom is found. And so uh, we think about that today as, as a church family. Now, uh, we are in a series in the book of Philippians. We started a couple weeks ago. We're going to journey through the whole book of Philippians this summer. And some of you are in discipleship groups, and so you've already started breaking this down uh, individually within your groups, uh, which is awesome. And so we are in Philippians 1, 19 through 30. So we're wrapping up the first chapter here. But the message today is starting with the end in mind. Starting with the end in mind. How would you define a successful life? We've heard before that it, it, to have a successful life, you must start with the end in mind. And so what's the end look like for you? Uh, in the book, The Intentional Father, one of the things he talks about is this. As, 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 a, as a father or as a parent, uh, when you think about your child's last day, in the home, when you're sending them into the world, what do you hope that that looks like for them? What's the, the, the intentional sending look like on that day? You know, for some of us, we've heard before, like, what, what would it look like for somebody to show up to your funeral and for them to, to, to what, what would the people say 
about you and about your life? Because I think this is a really good question as we start to think about what does success really look like? It reminded me of a story, story of a, a, a true story of a, a young man named Christopher McCandless. Um, his story has been written in a book. It's been in a movie. Um, the movie's called Into the Wild. And um, for him, it was about this struggle about what success is. And so he grew up in an extremely broken home, dysfunctional home. Father was very absent. After he graduated college, he donated everything he had and left home and sought uh, this increasingly nomadic lifestyle. Um, in the book, it talks about his life. He wrote journals about what he did. Um, but essentially, he defined success much differently than those around him. And so he saw the emptiness of the materialism that was around him and all of these things. And so he said, I don't want to live that life. And so I want a different type of success. On his travels, he eventually found this abandoned bus in the Alaskan wilderness and was tragically trapped on this bus until he eventually died. Until a few years ago, there were people that would travel to this bus on the Stampede Trail in the Alaskan wilderness, and some on this trek said that they wanted to get away from society and figure out what success really is, and, and they wanted to read through his journals and look at this, but even some traveling to this bus ended up dying. And his last note, he was basically all alone. He says, I'm in need of help. I'm injured, near death, weak, uh, too weak to hike out of here. I'm all alone. This is no joke. In the name of God, please remain to save me. And so this is where he ended up at the end of his life, stranded alone in this bus in the Alaskan wilderness. As we talked about this fatherless generation or people living aimlessly, they connect with this story. They say, I, I, I feel like success is something different than what's defined for me, and so I'm going to go search out for what it is. But in many ways, it becomes aimless. This futurist, um, Alvin Toffler, uh, sees in this current culture, he said this, he says, we are witnessing a historic decline in the significance of place to human life. We are breeding a new race of nomads, and few sus uh, suspect how massive, widespread, and significant their migrations are. Right? We're searching. There's a, there's a generation that's searching, and the end that's in mind, we don't know what it is. See, why does this all matter? For many, we really don't in intentionally think about what the end looks like, and so often it becomes tragic, hopeless, joyless, discouraging. But in our text today, we, we get a glimpse of the Apostle Paul talking about his end, talking about death. And instead of being empty and still searching, we see that he's filled with joy, hope, encouragement, faith, because he says he knows, he knows what matters most. He knows it. And so as Christians, 
Could we reframe the question about success into this? How does God define a successful life? And does your or my definition match up with his definition? Does it line up? I love how it talks about the life of David in the book of Acts. It just simply says, uh, David was faithful to God in his generation and then he died. Wow. That's the tombstone, right? Like the phrase on there, he was faithful to God in his generation and then he died. But to say, what does, def- what, what does a definition of success look like? Not by just what I think, but what does God say? And so our text again is Philippians 1, 19 through 30. And to give some context, Paul is uh, writing to the Philippian church, uh, which he was a part of planting um, in this Roman colony. In Acts 16, uh, we see that he planted in this church, and, and Paul was, was not planning on going to this city in particular, but by divine intervention, by a closed door, and God opening up another door, he ends up in Philippi. And that's where God opens up Lydia's heart to the gospel and to a, a little slave girl that was entrenched in trauma and seeing God healing her life. A Philippian jailer comes to faith, and that's where a church is started. And so Lydia, who was a very successful businesswoman, opened up her home and saw a church that was planted right there in her home. Paul is now writing this letter to his friends from a Philippian or from a Roman a jail cell knowing that his life was most likely coming to an end. And many believe that it was about a year or two later that he would end up being uh, executed and killed. And so Paul, though not having uh, a wife or his own kids, the way that this Philippian, uh, book of Philippians is written, this letter to the Philippians, is written very much like a loving, caring parent to their children. He talks about this in Philippians 4, uh, about the way that he feels about them. It's like his joy and his crown. He, he just, he loves this, this church. He loves the people. And so what can we learn today from this text as, as Paul, someone getting close to the end, is thinking about his life and trying to pass this on to this young church? What's he passing on to them? And how is he defining what success is characterized by? A God success. Number one, reliance. Number two, better. And number three, conviction. Reliance, better, conviction. So the first one is reliance. Look at verses 19 through 20 if you've got your Bibles today. Here's what he says. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be, or not, be not at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, 
whether by life or by death. Now again, Paul is in prison and facing certain death. And so how is Paul so resilient? Well, it's because of his reliance upon God. His reliance upon God. Look at the phrases he uses here. He says, I know. And so when he uses this, this phrase, I know, it is a certainty that he knows. It's not like, oh, I, I, I think I know. No, this is I know. He says, this will, eager expectation, hope that will not be at all ashamed, full courage. That's how he's facing the circumstances and trials that he's currently in. He has this reliance and this assurance that everything's going to be okay. This week I got a text message from a friend. And I'd heard that uh, recently he got a notice that he needed to move. And just in the times that we're living in right now, it's just like, oh, man, I, I know that, that's really difficult. That's really not an easy thing. And so I texted him back. And I said something to the effect of, man, like, I know what you're going through. Like, I heard about it. Man, it sounds really unfair. I said, it sounds really unfair, just the way it all kind of went down. And he, he, wrote, he wrote me back. He texted me back. He, says, he said this. He says, not unfair at all, just a part of life. And then he says, looking forward to what God has in store for our next home. What that was for me was a check. Because for me, the way I was looking at it, it was like such a bummer, man. Like I, that's hard. But, but for him, there was like this reliance in the Lord that was kind of at that point for me, it wasn't on the grid. It was off the grid. Right, you're like, that's the pastor. Yeah, the pastor struggles too, right? And so you're like, okay. But that's what I needed to hear. That's what I needed to see. And I was just like, dude, that's such a great perspective. What a great perspective to have. You see, when we're thinking about the Apostle Paul here, and the, the Philippians are worried and concerned about him, and like, man, you're in prison, and all of these things, this text is a check for them. Because this is a reliance upon God that they needed to hear. Paul's not relying on himself. He's not, even, he's not relying on others or circumstances and chance. But he says he has this eager expectation. Literally means this. Stretch or strain the neck forward. That's what the literal translation is saying here. It's like he's, he's leaning forward, expecting something that God's going to do. Paul completely relies on Christ and believes that his life is in God's hands. When commentator Tony Morita says, in verse 19, Paul speaks of the source of his joyful confidence. He's relying on the prayers of the Philippians and the sufficiency of the Spirit of Christ. Listen to this. Commentators point out that Paul exactly quotes Job 13, 16 from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he may have been reflecting on the life of Job and also suffered, who also suffered even though he committed no crime. Here's what he quotes. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance. 
Now, if you know anything about the book of Job, Job loses everything. He loses everything. And there's no explanation of what's happening all around him, but it just happens one day. And there is this whole dialogue between him and God, basically to the point of saying, what did you want more? What was success to you? Having all of these things or having me? By the end of it, we see that Job ultimately wanted God more than he wanted anything in this world. But he was put through terrible, terrible circumstances. And now Paul is saying and quoting Scripture to speak into his circumstances. He's, he's quoting something that we've seen before as he looked through uh, what we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. As he was looking through them, he was saying, okay, I have very dire circumstances, very difficult circumstances, but I will take hope as those before me have taken hope in God. Ben Witherington, who's another commentator, says the context of Job is important there. The issue is Job's standing before God in his vindication. Listen to this. God will work these things out for Paul's ultimate good. And if things go badly, humanly speaking, God can provide a bountiful supply of the Spirit's aid so that Paul can endure and remain a good witness to the end. Do you see what this type of reliance looks like? It's not relying because everything's just going to be really great on the other side and it's going to be my best life is coming right before me in the circumstances of this world. But it's saying, no, God is going to give me everything that I need to face whatever I face today. That's the reliance that Paul is talking about here. Second, there's a better. Okay, look at verses 21 through 23. He says this, for, for uh, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall... I, or which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. <clears throat> What's Paul saying here? First, he's giving us a glimpse into his heart and his mind by saying these two words. He says, to me, to me. Right, there, there's a point, like we talked about, like his reliance, the things that he, he's, he's meditating on. He's like, I'm going to let you in on how I'm thinking right now. He says, to me, this is something personal that I want to share with you. He's saying, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now, we can't see on the surface the beautiful construction in the Greek of what he's saying here. But beneath the surface, here's what he's saying. Living means Christ. Living depends on Christ. Living honors Christ. There's like this cadence in the Greek translation that can't be seen, 
in the English translation. And basically what it is, it's this powerful drumbeat for life. That cadence that you hear and it just, it just lifts your spirit. This is the cadence that Paul is living by. He's basically saying this over and over and over again. It's Christ. Now, to give some application here again, that Tony Morita, who's a commentator, says this. This is super helpful. He says, the application of this verse appears with the little phrase at the beginning, for me. Paul is resolved that he would uh, live for Christ. Everyone must fill in this blank personally. How would you complete this sen- sentence? For me, living is blank. If it often gets filled with cheap substitutes, money, sexual pleasure, power, beauty, entertainment, etc. But using the logic of this passage, notice what fills the second blank. Dying is blank. If you fill the first one with these substitutes, if you say living is money, then you would fill in the second blank with dying is being broke. After all, you can't take it with you. Do you see the cadence here of what he's saying? Whatever fills that blank, whatever you put in that blank, if it's not in Christ, it will be lost. It will. And so Paul is saying, this is the better thing for me. Christ is better. Again, he's facing death. He's imprisoned. All of these things are kind of coming together at once for him. And he's saying, everything makes sense for me right now that this is what's true. This is the better. Second, he's making clear that your best life is not now. Your best life is not now. (laughs) See, this life is not better than the life to come. What's he say? Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. Now, this should make us ask, is what he's saying truly better? Is that better? Do I believe that that's better? The only way that you can believe that that's better is that you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. This is like the test, of the, the litmus test of the heart to say, do I believe that that's better? The older I get, the more I realize, yeah, it is better. But for many of us, we fill in that blank with something else. See, the better for Paul is Christ and being with Christ. And I'm telling you, there are so many things that It's easy to give lip service to that, but do I actually believe that? Third is conviction. Look at verses 24 through 26. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, what is Paul's conviction here? 
Well, he says it twice. He says, to remain, he says, I will remain. To remain, I will remain. That's what he says, verse 24, verse 25. He's, this is conviction is, I will remain. Near the end of his ministry, late pastor Eugene Peterson came to three realizations about how to faithfully live out the gospel. And he talks about this when it comes to this idea of remaining. He says to remain patiently, locally, personally. He said, um, patiently, I would stay with these people. There are no quick or easy ways to do this. Locally, I would embrace the conditions of this place, economics, weather, culture, schools, whatever, so that there would be nothing abstract or piously idealized about what I was doing. Personally, I would know them, know their names, know their homes, know their families, know their work. Now, when he talks about remaining here, the Apostle Paul is not able to visit them and remain with them personally, but he's still connected to them. And what we've seen in this very nomadic generation is that we have a real big problem with remaining, with sticking something out. But our tendency more than remaining is to run, to run away. And so our convictions change all the time. But what does it look like to remain and to embrace the calling that God places on your life? Because what we see here that is that Paul is convicted to the point where he's like, man, I know it's better to be with Christ, but I'm going to remain. Why does he remain? Number one, he says, for progress, verse 25, for progress, for your progress, for the people's progress. Here's what he knows. This is an instant. Gospel transformation takes time. It takes time. It's called fruit for a reason. Fruit doesn't just sprout up overnight, but it comes in season. Planting seeds, right? We see farming analogies all through the scriptures. But yet we live in a very instant generation, culture, where we just want results immediately. The Apostle Paul says it's not going to happen like that. It didn't happen in his life. It's not going to happen in our life. But it's going to go against the grain of culture by leaning in and saying, I want progress to happen, but it's not going to be quick. Second, he says joy. For others' joy. Verse 25. See, this is much bigger than his own personal happiness. What, what, what Paul is talking about here is it's, it's overwhelming happiness, no matter the circumstances that he faces, for reaching true joy that goes beyond just the circumstantial moments of life. See, again, why do we not usually experience this type of life. It's because we're used to running rather than remaining. And so my encouragement to you today is what does it look like to be convicted to remain in the calling that God has for your life? Because in that place, that's where the fruit happens. That's where the seeds are planted. This is a great quote from Alan Briggs. I was reading this book, um, Staying is the New Going. And here's what he says. He says, Jesus' ministry plan was 
to move into the neighborhood, John 1.14, to move from being above us to being among us. Incarnational ministry moves us from above our places to among the people within the community. Presence is not just physical. It's also emotional and spiritual. It has never been easier to be among people physically while remaining disconnected from them, reading emails on our phones, or entertaining ourselves on a tablet. Living incarnational lives requires us not just to stay physically, but to remain engaged in the spaces, opportunities, and lives around us. Now, do you know how the Philippians learned this way of life. It's because the Apostle Paul didn't live above them. For that season, he lived among them. That's how the connection happened. And friends, we need to ask, do we need to repent of living above places rather than living among the people which God places around us? There's a deep conviction that if God called him to be on the earth, to breathe another breath, that it was with intentionality. Intentionality. That that was a gift from God not to waste his time on this earth. And so quickly, some takeaways. How can we live with the end in mind? Well, the first one is this. Examine your source of reliance. Examine your source of reliance. This is where the gospel breaks through in our lives or we keep it at a safe distance from us and say, I got it. I got it. The message of Christianity is reliance. See, friends, the, 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 the scriptures talk about us not as uh, well-fed, having it all together, but he talks about us all being beggars in need of bread. Beggars just simply telling other beggars where the bread is. It's in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. Not just some of us, but all of us. And so where is our reliance? Because the gospel and the message of Jesus calls us to rely upon God's grace. Unearned favor, love, kindness, that all of us need that. It is a reliance upon him, not ourselves. It's a reliance upon Jesus and his saving work, that Jesus came and saved us from ourselves and from our sin. And ultimately, from the righteous judgment that we deserved. That's what he saved us from. It's a reliance upon God's strength in everyday life. See, has the, has the message of relying on Jesus reached everyday life, or are we still trusting in ourselves? I was having a conversation recently with, with some uh, friends, some, some that are in this church that have been pouring, I've been pouring into for, I don't know, the past five, six years. And we were talking about how many times what we have is this little gospel, this little gospel idea that really doesn't break through into our real lives. But just this gospel of, yes, Jesus saved me from my sins. 
And yes, he did save you from your sins. But he also saved you for fruit. <laughs> to bear fruit, to bear much fruit. He said that's the sign of a believer. And so when does the gospel break through into the different areas of our lives that we're holding him at a distance and saying, I got this? Has he broken into those areas? And will we rely on him and be, he be the source of our reliance? Because that's what the apostle Paul is doing. And he's saying, this will change your perspective. It, it, it doesn't keep you in a safe place, but it changes your perspective. It changes my perspective. The word of God changes my perspective. It won't fit in. It will be off the grid. Just like the Apostle Paul when he's talking to the Philippians here. It's like, oh, wow, that's, that's off the grid. Okay, it's different. Second, ask God to define better for you. Ask God to define better for you. What's the better? See, this is a hard one because there is an authentic confession that we have to make. I love the confession from Psalm 73 because the psalmist here is real. Here's what he says. He says um, this. He says, they say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. You know what the psalmist is saying here? He's saying he's looking at people who don't rely on God and they seem to have it all. They've got the nice houses. They're amassing wealth. Everything seems to be working out for them. Their, their bodies are healthy. Everything, they, they look great. God, what, what are, I'm trying to follow your commands here, and I feel like I'm beat up every day, spit on, made fun of, looking like a fool in front of people, taken advantage of. That's what it looks like for my life, God. Like, what's going on here? I'm the one being punished, and they're out there having a grand old time. And here's the question. Have you ever felt like that? Have you been at that place? Because that's the question about what's better. Because there's something in us that makes us think that that's what better really looks like. While I'm following God, they're over there getting better than I do. And that's really what's better. And what it is, is a check in our hearts. It's a heart check. Because later it says that he goes into the, the, uh, to worship God and, and he repents of his behavior. He says, I've acted uh, not like a human, but actually like an animal. And I'm sorry, Lord, for even treating you like that. But his definition of what was better was this. And so the question that I want to ask us is this. Who's the they for you? Who's the they? And do you believe they have it better than you do? Because that's where we're going to find the answer to if God's definition is actually better for us and greater for us than what we're seeing around us. Who is 
the day. Because you might have them in your school, in your workplace, in your home, whatever it might be. Who is the they that you're continually judging in your mind and saying, man, they have it so much better than me? God, where are you at? Because that's where you're going to find the answer to. Ask God what, the, what, what to define better for you is and what it really is. Is he better? Remember Job? Remember what he went through? Is God better? Third, invest in a God conviction. Invest in a God conviction. Right, the Apostle Paul is saying don't waste your life. Do not waste your life. There's conviction that God has placed on you because you're still here. If you're still breathing and you're still here, there is something that he has for you to do. Don't give up on that. And what this is, is going to take humility, selflessness, a servant heart. It will take you out of your comfort zone. And you'll know that it's a God conviction because it's something that you can't do on your own. And you might not even want to do it. But you say, God, help me. Help me. See, for Paul, it was to remain. He says, it's better to be with Jesus. I, I would just rather be with Jesus today. But um, God's calling me to remain. I love this quote from Jim Elliott. He died on the mission field. He says, wherever you are, be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you believe to be the will of God. If you're here, you're standing in the middle of God's will, what is it? What's he called you to do? Lastly, prioritize God-centered relationships. Prioritize God-centered relationships. Later, in verse 27, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I may hear of you, and when he says you, he's talking about you all. It's not you individually. We live in a very, you know, individualistic, Western mindset. Oh, you, that's got to be about me. No, he's saying you all. So he's talking about all, you all, that you all are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. One of the things I'm realizing as I get older is that when my knees hurt, it's usually not because it's my knees. It's because there's something else. There's, there's other parts of my body that are interconnected to the point where it'll make my knees hurt or my feet hurt. It's not just that one part that you think it is. And you and I are more interconnected than we realize and are called to be more interconnected. But here's what we love to do as a, as a culture. If you were to study a thumb, right, you say, well, let's just take the thumb, for instance. And so we cut it away from the body. Let's study a thumb. Let's study what that looks like. Okay, what does a thumb do? If it's disconnected from the body, it isn't doing anything. You're not going to be able to study much other than, like, what's inside of it. You're going to dissect it. And what happens in our culture is that we say, okay, I'm just going to, I'm a thumb, and so I'm going to study myself apart from the body, apart from others. And you're not going to learn much. 
you won't learn much. You might learn little parts, but we live in a culture that says just study yourself. But what the word says is that we are all interconnected together and that the only way you're going to really know who you are and what you were made for is when you are intimately in relationship with other people within the church, within the body, Christ's body, one mind striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. That's when you're going to know why you're here, what you're for, what your purpose is. And so when we talk about success, it's living within the body of Christ together, living out the purposes that he has for you. See, the only way you're going to know is when you're fully integrated into Christ's body. This isn't just Grace City. It's the kingdom. It's bigger than Grace City. So you have friends that are at your workplace that are believers that maybe it might be interesting if you said, hey, as a believer, would would it be cool if we just prayed? We kind of figure out what it looks like to be believers in this space. I don't know. (laughs) What would it look like for you as somebody that um, is a part of the community looking at your neighbors and saying, hey, I think you're a believer, right? Like, let's, let's try and live this out where we're at. Because again, like, this isn't going to happen solo, and it's not going to happen through one little church. It's the kingdom of God, which is much bigger than what we see around us. And so we're going to wrap up with this. What's the, what's the, the ending for every believer? What's the, the gospel ending, the good news ending? It's not that you're going to get everything you want in this life. The apostle Paul got prison and execution. It's that you get Christ. You get God. You get eternity. He's the prize. See, how is what Paul says true? He says, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's because Christ came from heaven to earth and lost. When people looked at Jesus, they looked at him on the cross and they said, don't do what he's doing. He's the loser. But they didn't realize, and we didn't realize, as we look at that cross, it's not just a man up there bloody and beaten up, but that's the Savior of the world who says, I'm losing so that you can gain. Because all the things that you think are going to gain you a life are actually going to, you're going to lose your life. Gain the whole world, forfeit your soul. You're going to lose your life. He says, but for me to lose my life, you gain it all. You gain everything. Christ is the source. Christ is everything. He came to redeem us. He came to forgive us. He came to heal us. He came to encourage us. He came to rescue us. See, can you say today, for to, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain? 
I wanna end with St. Patrick's prayer. St. Patrick lived in the fifth century. <laughs> He's not like we think with uh, St. Patty's Day. Wearing green and drinking beer. That's not, that's, not, that's not the way we celebrate him. But here's his prayer. And, 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 and St. Patrick went to a people where he believed that God was calling him to go. God called him back to a people that enslaved him. And he went and reached them with the gospel. But here's what he says. He, he says, as he's going out, gonna face threats of death daily. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me, Christ in the eye that sees me, Christ in the ear that hears me. Covered with the power and the work of Jesus Christ. May we live like that. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that we see that we could gain the whole world and we think that that would be better, but it's actually, we're losing. We lose our soul. But yet you lost everything, Lord, on that cross so that we could gain everything in you that matters most. And so help us to remain, Lord. Help us to live as Christ and to remember that die is gain. That if I were to die tomorrow, that the gain of having you, Lord, and, and being with you for eternity is much better. But let us remain, Lord, faithful to you all the days that we have in our life. Every day we have is a gift from you, Lord. And I just pray over the fathers that we remember that, that we don't waste a day, but that we live uh, intentionally for the sake of the gospel and the power of Christ. In Jesus' Thank name. you for listening to this resource Amen. from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.